Hi everyone, I'm Anna Clips. And I'm Paul Schiaparoni, and this is the Engineering History Podcast. If you want to hear about where engineering and history collide, then you're at the right show. Today, we'll be going over Henry Ford's crazy Amazon adventure. Ooh, I figured it was something related to Henry Ford. You knew how excited I was for this podcast. Yeah. But first, let's give you some background about us. I am a manufacturing engineer working at an aerospace company. And I am a civil engineer focusing on water resources and water quality. We're not drinking alcohol today because it's so weak. We should just, let's get rid of the alcohol. Yeah, it's like we not. never even drink alcohol. Yeah, I know. We're ch- we're, that like little break that we had turned into like six months of yeah, just yeah. not drinking. We should turn it into the coffee, like, but we also always drink the same coffee, so that's not that interesting. Yeah, but you know what is interesting? Henry Ford's Crazy Amazon Adventure? Uh, yes. <laughs> Okay, cool. Well, then let's get into it, Anna. Um, mm-hmm. And and I kind of want to start us off by by letting folks know that this podcast is heavily based on a book called Fordlandia <laughs> by Greg Graydon. You you just took it out of your sweater. <laughs> and I was it, I was kind of hiding it. I didn't want you to think you don't want to know where you, where I was hiding it before. Up your butt. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, <clears throat> what, what's going on with Fordlandia? So, um, this is a book by Greg Grandin. It's a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and and folks, it reads like it. This mm-hmm. is a th- I so uh, for my job, I've started driving a lot recently mm-hmm. um, for for various reasons, and this having as an audiobook just makes the the drive sail by. Okay, I bet. A- and and frankly, I took a lot of. From that book, and then I did some supplemental research to kind of figure out what was going on. So the book mostly focuses on what's going on in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then I did a little supplemental research to figure out what was going on with Ford himself, some of the stuff I knew already, but then also um, we'll get into it. But this podcast actually didn't start as a crazy Amazon adventure podcast. It started as a totally different podcast. Okay. So what this is going to be is the story of the Ford Motor Company's ill-fated attempt to start a rubber plantation on the Tapayos River, which is an offshoot of the Amazon River. Mm-hmm. The majority of the story will take place in Brazil, but first, let's get some background on Henry Ford and the history of the Ford Motor Company up to this point. Yeah. Can I just say, before we get started, this whole like Fordlandia, his wacky adventure through the Amazon rainforest, it's giving me big Willy Wonka vibes. Ooh, that's interesting. I yeah. think Willy Wonka is actually probably largely based on Ford himself. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised. Like you yeah. know the Johnny Depp version where he goes through like the Amazon rainforest. I don't think I've seen the Depp version. Oh, it's okay. It it was all right. Yeah, but it's like good. I mean, it's just, it's like you're comparing it to Gene Wilder, and that's I, like, I know. Yeah, that's, that's fair. A ton- but uh, now we got Timothy Chalamet. I think. Oh yeah, I think it's going into the origins. I, I, I'm I'm intrigued to see what that movie is, it, how it, it goes. It'd be interesting if it tracked Henry Ford's life at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a Henry Ford movie at the end. Like. I think part I think part of it's supposed to be like a critique of like industrial society or something. Probably. And Fordism actually, which will come up in this podcast, and we'll explain what all that is. Okay. Well, I just wanted to put my two cents out there, and nothing really related to. Fordlandia or anything like that. It was just an interesting comparison. It is, especially because, you know, I, I think, I don't know when Willy Wonka was written, but it definitely would have been drawing. Like, this is, like, like the time, like, this story takes place in, like, mm-hmm. the 20s, the 30s. This is that, like, kind of, like, industrial, like, height of American oh. manufacturing, and, like, everybody was, like, super pumped for that kind of thing, and, like, 
We'll get into it, but people got utopian about it. Yeah, I think Willy Wonka was written after World War II by um, that guy. Oh, Roald Dahl? Is Roald, that, Roald, yeah. Is Roald it Dahl, Dahl or Dahl? I thought it was Dahl. It's probably Roald Dahl. Yeah. Yeah. I, this, so this story, Fordlandia, the whole time period we're looking at is basically going to be like late 20s to around the end of World War II. Okay. So this would have been actually that perfect time. Mm, interesting. Okay. Coincidence? I think not. Yeah, it's probably not a coincidence. But that leads to who was Willy Wonka, and maybe a better question, who was Henry Ford? <laughs> I don't know. I'd love to hear about it. So, I said our story starts in around 1928 or so, 19, late 20s, mm-hmm. but Ford himself was actually born in 1863. Whoa. So by the time this story happens, he's already, you know, look. No ageism here on the Engineering History Podcast, but he's already, you know, seasoned, let's say. Yeah, he's an old guy. Yeah, a little bit. Um, But Henry, uh, born in 1863 on a farm in Michigan, super mechanically inclined from an early age. He loved machines. He loved watches. He loved, you know, any mechanical thing. He was super into watches. Mm -hmm. And he hated farming. He was not a farmer. (laughs) He was like, I I think I had like some version of this growing up where Mm -hmm. I like hated chores. You know this. I still hate chores to a level that I think most people like. I feel like most people just live with the fact they have to do chores. Mm -hmm. Like for me, every time I do chores, it's like it's like an insult to me. (laughs) Personally. <laughs> to your superiority. No, not to my superiority. It's just like a waste of time. <laughs> it's just like, why wouldn't you just automate this, right? Um, so Henry Ford, I think, felt uh, that probably times 100. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, eventually, you know, he, he was kind of supposed to inherit the farm. But at age 16, he actually left home to become a machinist and sort of forego the family dream for him. He later ended up working as an engineer for the Edison Illuminating Company of Detroit, where he met his lifelong friend, Thomas Edison. Whoa, there's a crossover? Oh, there's many crossovers. There's going to be a few crossovers in this one. This reminds me of the Great Stink episode, where, like, somehow Charles uh, Dickens was Mm -hmm. like, man, Mm -hmm. this river... She be smelling she real bad. She be smelling no. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I didn't write this down. So let me say it now before I forget it. There's a part in the book where Edison's like 82nd birthday happens or something, and mm-hmm. it's like all the big like industrials come by. You have Thomas Edison, Henry Ford. Obviously, Tesla is not there. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know who does drop by that surprised me? Hmm. Marie Curie. What the fuck? All people. <laughs> Edison fan, which I was like, that's your girl. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> like, what's going on there? She's probably single by this time. Possibly. He's 80. I don't know. Because Edison would have been uh, Ford's senior. Mm-hmm. He would have been older than Ford. So, yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know. When did Pierre die? Uh, I, I don't know. Oh, shoot. I don't know. That episode, <laughs> it was, that was, the, it was a while ago. <laughs> Sorry, folks. We don't have the facts off the top. Like, we do the research. And then, and then like, we you forget know, about it. It's like taking a test. It's like taking a test. <laughs> Go listen to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then email us. <laughs> Please. <laughs> we really are curious. Um, anyway, uh, Edison and Ford, big pals, not um, – we'll do the Edison episode eventually. That's not going to be the only EHP crossover this episode, though. If we get another Marie Curie crossover. That was the one. Oh, that was the damn one crossover, it. Okay. Um, but, you know, I mean, there are pictures in here. You know, Ford was, like, the talk of the town. He was, like, you know uh, – t- 
cringe at this comparison all you want. <laughs> he was kind of the Elon Musk of his time, you know? He's, like, mm-hmm. just the most famous industrialist. He's hanging out with celebrities, you know? Yeah. In probably in all the ways Elon is good and bad, probably the exact same way with Ford. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> which is a very nuanced statement. But um, anyway, uh, Edison uh, and Ford would eventually become pals. And at this time, Ford was experimenting with creating gasoline engines and cars, which Edison approved of. At the time, gasoline engines weren't actually that popular. And cars were like a rich man's toy. Mm. So, you know, it was like kind of like the way cell phones used to be, where it's like it used to be you paid like thousands of dollars for this piece of shit giant blocky thing mm-hmm. and now we all pay not that much money i mean not as much some people pay you know it's like an That's iphone it's like a, yeah but like most people wouldn't pay thousands literally uh, and we, we all got one so um yeah. hopefully yeah. um anyway uh so starting in 1899 ford said later edison you've been a great mentor and everything i don't think it was really his mentor but like you've been great support mm-hmm. but i'm going to start a company and get this car built. Ooh, okay. Okay. He started many companies. They all failed. Oh. Like, he started like at least two or three companies before Ford. He Ooh. started one company that was called like the Ford Company, and then he left, and they renamed it Cadillac, which Whoa. is still around. Okay. I didn't know that's how Cadillac started. <laughs> Damn. So um, I didn't really get into like why these companies kept failing. If it's anything to do with kind of like how Ford will be later on, it does feel like, and I'm sorry, I cringe too at the Elon comparison, but don't even think of Elon. Think of like just these, like Steve Jobs is probably another good example. Like, you know, people who are a little strident, they have Mm -hmm. a way of like, it should be this way. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily hear your opinion if you disagree, Mm -hmm. you know? I kind of get that feeling from Ford, too. He was kind of that person. Was Ford the guy who made um, eight-hour workdays as well? Yes. Yeah. So we'll get into that because Ford actually... (laughs) Really? What's wrong with eight-hour workday? No, I don't think there's anything wrong with eight-hour workdays, but I think it's more along the lines of nowadays, um, if you can efficiently get your work done within four days... Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be five days, eight hours, then I don't understand why there's, like, this pushback to not have, like, three-day weekends. Basically, what I'm saying is, like, I think we should have three-day weekends. So Ford, you know, part of his push, my understanding, was that it was actually a struggle to get two-day weekends. Like, it was expected for to work Saturday, Mm. and he gave them two-day weekends. Um, So, I mean, everything I heard from the labor perspective Mm-hmm. We'll get into it's kind of a complex thing. We'll get into the real details. Yeah. But um it sounds like he was at least in the beginning really interested in giving his employees a fair shot. Um, okay. Okay. I can't I can't hate him for that. Maybe it's on us here in the future in what he would have considered the future to not stick with his original vision, mm-hmm. you know. And even Ford himself over his life kind of transformed a little bit and we'll get into that too. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll I'll hear him out. Cool. So um, anyway, he's he's starting all these companies, and it wasn't until 1903 that he reincorporated one of these many attempts into the Ford Motor Company. At 39 years of age, so you know, a little late. He's for, a little. He's a little. A yeah. little older. You know, that's and that's not always a bad thing. You know, as someone who's kind of interested in entrepreneurship, I read a lot of the statistics, and often the most successful companies are actually founded by older people. Like, 
especially like kind of early 30s is sometimes a sweet spot because you don't necessarily have kids, but you have like more experience than some dude who's like fresh out of college, you know? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's fair because it's like what you said, you have a little bit more experience, a little bit more time under the belt. You're more familiar with how your industry works. Exactly, exactly. You're not uh, down, bogged down by the harsh realities of children. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, Oh, well, you know, and they're a blessing. But, um, <laughs> you know, Ford also, you know, for him, like, learning his craft was really important. It doesn't sound like he came from money. He came from a farm, you know. Mm-hmm. So he probably needed to build up the resources, which these are the practical considerations. Yeah. Is Detroit, <clears throat> is that where he set up his Ford Motors company, right? Yeah, so he was from Dearborn, which is slightly west of Detroit, but Detroit yes. kind of became the hub um, of, of, you know, Ford. Cool. And uh, River Rouge is where they would have their main manufacturing facility, which we'll talk about, too. Okay. Um. Cool. So, you know, in 1908, so five years after 1903, mm-hmm. he started full production of the Model T, which is the most iconic car of the era. Whoa. Right? So imagine an old-timey car with, mm-hmm. like, kind of the triangle front and, like, thin wheels and stuff. Yeah. You're just imagining a Model T. Like, that is, oh, okay, that's how okay. they came. <clears throat> Wasn't there some crazy thing where they wouldn't let women drive because they thought their uteruses would fall out? <laughs> I, I feel like that wasn't Ford, but that sounds like the kind of thing that would happen at the time. <laughs> yeah, because it was, like, some crazy thing where, like, women weren't allowed to to drive. Look, you know, um, and I think, you know, that's a valid concern. <laughs> Has your uterus fallen out when you, you've driven? Not yet. Okay. Well, it's a matter of time. <laughs> 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 okay. Jesus. <laughs> so, um, so, look, I need to give credit to Ford as a manufacturing engineer. Uh, I, as a manufacturing engineer, need to give credit to Ford. Mm-hmm. He essentially invented my job and my career field, right? So, sort of the big innovation uh, with Ford and the Model T, uh, you maybe have heard this, you've probably heard this, but the big innovation was not making the car. The car itself was like, you know, it was just a car. Who cares? Mm-hmm. They had cars. It's not like he invented the car. But what he did essentially event, invent was mass manufacturing, mm-hmm. right? So the assembly line, apparently he was inspired by butcher shops where, like, they would cut hunks off meat in this, like, really, like, sort of, you know, uh, uh, moving process. Mm-hmm. So essentially he took U.S. industry from what was called craft manufacturing or bespoke pieces made by artisan skilled workers to mass manufacturing. Okay. So think of this like, um, you know, think of this laptop that's sitting in front of us right here, right? Let's just say offhand there's like, I don't know, 10,000 parts in this laptop. We can give or take for the for the circuit boards. Back in the day, if you wanted to make this laptop, you would have to, you know, craft every single piece and make sure everything worked with every other thing. And you have like one guy and that probably takes like, I don't know, a year or two. You know, we, we couldn't have laptops, us, you know? Yeah. But what Ford sort of pioneered and what Apple does, most modern industries do a version of mass manufacturing that's actually called lean manufacturing. That's kind of the current standard. Mm, Okay. Um, But it's a lot of the same principles as mass manufacturing. And the idea is all of the parts on this laptop are specified to a certain tolerance level. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I know my dimensions won't vary beyond X or Y things. So all I need to do is get someone to build those and then get another person to put those together and another person to test those. So you don't need this sort of bespoke artisan to, like, build this laptop from scratch and make it all work, you know? Okay. But don't you need, like, separate companies for, like, certain parts? Not necessarily. So one of Ford's obsessions was was what was called vertical integration. 
And this is what we see in our modern industrialists too. They've carried this through. So vertical integration is like, is like, I, let's say I'm Apple and I'm making this laptop mm-hmm. and there's like a chip that I need in this laptop. Actually, this kind of happened in real life, but, um, uh, so there's a chip that I need to make this laptop work. Let's say Intel makes that chip. Okay. And Intel comes to me and they're like, Hey, you know, we know you need our chips. We're going to dick you down. And actually Ooh. it's double price now. I'm Apple. I'm like, Hey, why don't you go F yourself? I'm making my own chips now. Yeah. Which Apple has now started making their own chips, but I don't think it was because Intel was dicking them down. It's for whatever reason. Yeah. It's for whatever reason. So let's <laughs> get into those reasons. <laughs> um, so there's two two main things, right? You're going to have tighter control over the manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have better margins because you're not paying the overhead of somebody else doing it. Okay. But obviously there's the peril of, like, if you've never done this manufacturing process before and you're not already an expert in it. So, like, Apple needed to build the confidence to make competence to make their own chips before they could sever ties with Intel on that one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, and this is kind of predictive for our story, but don't have the arrogance to just jump in, you know, half cocked, let's say. Okay. Um, anyway, I think I think that's most of what I wanted to say about ma- mass manufacturing. Just think of it from sort of this bespoke craft thing to now I'm making standard parts and having other people fit them together. And it's a lot more like an assembly line. Gotcha. Cool. So um, we've kind of already talked about the advantage of this, right? Up until this time, cars were toys of the rich. Access to a car was prohibitive for most people. This Mm -hmm. brought the costs way down to make it to where you and I could maybe afford a car. Whoa, we can't. (laughs) (laughs) Ford implemented what is now referred to, we talked about this before, as Fordism. In a nutshell, Fordism is the combined implementation of mass manufacturing techniques. So it's all that stuff. Plus, paying of a living wage to workers. So, and and kind of the advantage there is when you pay them that well, that means they can actually afford to buy the products that they make, right? So kind of Ford's sort of semi-utopian vision was like, we're going to make everything that you need to live. I'm going to pay you a lot of money. You're going to buy it because you know you make it, so you know the quality it is. Mm-hmm. And we're all going to be this little, like, ecosystem. And he had this whole thing about, like, you you could get a plot of farmland if you want, and then you could work in the factory when you want. You can kind of control your life that way. Mm-hmm. But it did not end up being that simple, and this is going to have a lot of bearing on how the whole Amazon adventure will go. Oh, no. <clears throat> so Ford like many industrialists, including our modern ones, by the way, mm-hmm. is a complicated guy. Oh, jeez. Okay. So Ford clearly cared about his workers. He wanted to pay them well. He wanted to ensure that they could live well. The way Ford paid his workers was actually insane for the time. It was in Bitcoin. Yes. <laughs> he actually inv- Remember the Who Invented Bitcoin episode? It was, yeah, it was, it was Ford. It was Ford, 100 years ago. <laughs> uh. Um, no, he, in 1914, he had folks making $5 a day. So this was like, uh, at the time, this was crazy. Like, this was like, whoa, that's so much money. Like, th- literally, the Wall Street Journal accused him of, quote, class treason. What? <laughs> or betraying the upper class by giving his workers such a good wage. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, th- I, somebody else, I didn't write it down, but somebody else was like, he's, he's co- either he's committing treason or economic blunders of the highest degree. <laughs> oh, my God, guys. Get a grip. <laughs> yeah. But, 
So you might be like, okay. And we talked about also, you know, like the five-day work week, the eight-hour day. Mm-hmm. Like, these are all great improvements for workers at this time. Workers were getting, like, you know, dicked before. Yeah. <laughs> However, it wasn't exactly that simple. So this money came with serious strings. <clears throat> Ford had really strong opinions on what qualified you as, like, a real American. Okay? Okay. Part of this was, like, a little racism, you know, which, you know, probably not more racism than than the general racism of the time. Although mm-hmm. he did have anti-Semitic opinions that were, like, way above the, the standards of the time. Oh, we'll get into those, too. Okay. But um, Ford, like, basically, it, it, he was like, I don't care where you came from. You're here now, and you're going to kind of live like a real American. I, I have a quote from the book that probably sums this up the best. Basically, Ford wanted them to live a certain way. Quote, and to make sure they did, the car maker dispatched inspectors from his sociological department to probe into the most intimate corners of Ford workers' lives, including their sex lives. Ew. <laughs> Denounced as a system of paternal surveillance, as often as it was lauded as a program of civic reform, by 1919, the sociological department employed hundreds of agents who spread out over Dearborn and Detroit, asking questions, taking notes, and writing up personnel reports. They, of course, discouraged drinking, smoking, and gambling, and encouraged saving clean living habits, keeping flies off food, maintaining an orderly house, backyard, and front porch, and sleeping in beds, end quote. Okay. This guy's insane. Yeah. (laughs) Like, the things that he's, like, encouraging are not in themselves bad, Mm -hmm. but the level of, like, control is... it's a, it's a bit too much. It's a bit too much. It, it, it gives me the ick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting big ick. I'm getting big ick uh, from, from from this. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is why it's complicated. Yeah, red flags everywhere. Red flags. Mm. Yeah, uh, and, you know, these weren't... So, like I said before, he was highly opinionated. Big opinion guy. Mm-hmm. He also had other weird opinions. Um I, well, I hate to follow this with that, but I, I think we already mentioned the anti-Semitism, so let's just <laughs> knock that one out of the way easily. Oh, Not that no. that's a weird opinion. That's a terrible opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but he was actually denounced at the time, which means, like, if he was denounced at the time for anti-Semitism, he was super anti-Semitic. Oh. He had this whole newspaper where he would just, like, go on these insane rants. <gasps> he owned a newspaper, so he would just, like, put this stuff out. Ew. He literally, in 1938, got a Nazi medal by the Nazis. They were like, we love this guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they gave him a thing. Hitler apparently was a giant fan. Ew. Um, yeah, he was, like, uh, like, Ford at one point was was like legally required to like recant his opinions because they were like so extreme. Um, yeah, uh, that doesn't have that much bearing on our story, other than to say he was not going to Brazil with the U.S.'s most open mind. Mm. And also, I just felt like you know, if we're talking about his opinions, like I, it just felt like I, I should mention that just because that's like part of the story. Ew, big ick. Big ick. Um, <laughs> even the people around him, aside from like his yes men, even the people around him were like, "Bro, you gotta stop with this bullshit." Yeah. Also, like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, honestly, if if it if you're denounced for the time, then it's that's that's, that's pretty, pretty bad. Let's let's get to his more um, sort of fun opinions. His more uh, sort of th- this is like kind of a wacky one. I don't think it balances the other one out. Ford. This is going to sound crazy for everything we've said before. Ford was actually the world's first soy boy. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> he did soy everything. <laughs> 
<laughs> Apparently, he was like, you know those dudes at the gym who have like the the gallon jug. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he essentially did that, but with soy milk. Like he was oh, always chugging soy milk. No. Giant fan. <laughs> he would give like the amount of soy. I'm sure the amount of soy milk that was consumed in the world at this time mm-hmm. was like. Hugely low compared to this. I think he was carrying. I'm pretty sure he was carrying the world's. He literally would serve people banquets soybean crackers, soybean cheese, soybean bread, soybean coffee, apple pie with soy crust. I could go on. There's like a list of like this menu that he would serve people. What the fuck is wrong with this guy? Get a grip. He was, it, this was part of his obsession with like, you know. You're in the farm, but then the farm produces everything you need, and then you use it for oh, everything. You know, okay. he was like so industrial, and he had kind of this like vision of like we can produce everything we need, and like mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be this like big utopian vision, and like eventually we'll phase out cows. He hated cows. He he, he, he which is kind of you know a lot of people today hate cows. Mm-hmm. He kind of had the same opinion that a lot of modern people do, which is like. It's a very inefficient way to get calories, right? Yeah. And he was so about efficiency. He was like <laughs> a giant efficiency guy. Oh, love to see it. Okay. You kind of do. So anyway, by the way, I kid you not, this is actually true. He made a fucking car out of soy. <laughs> I'm not, I'm serious. I, I'm not even joking. Holy shit. What the fuck? Yeah, we've lost the exact formula. He made a car out of hemp and soy and, like, turned it into this kind of plastic. Like, did it work? Like, it Great ran? car. Apparently, it was a great car. It was just the body panels, right? Oh, so, oh okay. Like, the, yeah. I just imagine the engine being made out of <laughs> Everything. Yeah. It runs on soy. <laughs> no, it was, it was just the body panels. And apparently, to make the body panels, like, actually work, mm-hmm. they had to, like, like soak it in, like, formaldehyde, which made it smell like a funeral home and, like, nobody oh, wanted to drive in it. <laughs> ew. Yeah, that's got to be terrible. Yeah, but apparently, like, uh, it was apparently strong as shit, like, because it had hemp like reinforcement so apparently it was like really really good Mm, okay it was light too but anyway he got so interested kind of in this topic that that we're sort of talking about where it's like you can grow everything and turn that into all the products you need for your life and then build you know sort of in the industry and and make everything else you need for your life Mm -hmm. he was so interested think back friend of the pod who was all about turning plants into products. Oh, that's right. I think I know who you're talking about. Okay. George Washington Carver mm-hmm. or George W. Carver, as we learned in that podcast. Yeah. Um, Ford was highly interested in Carver's work. They became pals. Wow. Um, since one of his big goals in life was to try to marry the worlds of factory and farm into one utopian American industrial future. And that's the end of the podcast, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it worked. We're all living in yeah. the future. <laughs> By the way, for whatever it's worth, another opinion. He was also an extreme pacifist. He hated war and strongly supported a one-world government as a remedy. Interesting. Okay. This guy is so weird. I don't know how to feel about him. I'm really... I love that we're doing the podcast because... I'm really starting to get a sense of, like, a type of person that becomes, like, an industrialist like like this, you know? They have to be fucking insane. (laughs) I don't think that's correct. I think they have to be, like, a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) What's the difference? (laughs) I don't think Ford was insane. Like, it seems like he was pretty rational in a lot of ways. Except for the (laughs) anti-Semitism. Yeah, no, definitely. It Like, it's like, maybe the formula is something like... You're 
extremely you you put all your points in like factory building mm-hmm. and so that gives you like confidence that you have strong opinions on other things but your strong opinions on other things aren't necessarily that well founded but because you were so good at the other thing you assume you must be a genius generally yeah and i'm sure he was probably surrounded by yes men oh, yeah. so yeah 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 that's often the path you see these people take is like once they get successful you take oh, kind of, kind of leeches around them a little bit sometimes. Yeah, that's why you need to get a good head on your shoulders before. Yeah, but I mean, even I, it sounds um, like Ford had a good head on his shoulders before. Then, I mean, at least as good as you know, hopefully. Yeah, then you need to find a way to not surround yourself with yes men, but that's so hard. That's a really tough thing. Um, anyway, um, so we have one last thing we should talk about before we before we really start the story. Mm-hmm. Which is Ford's flagship fact flagship factory. Okay. River Rouge. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to my confession of how this podcast started. This was not an Amazon podcast. This was going to be about the River Rouge. Okay. Okay. Because the River Rouge, um, is how how do, how do I even put it? As a manufacturing engineer, the River Rouge represents the most unbridled form of American manufacturing in its most glorious form and also in its darkest timeline, Mm -hmm. all within one building, all perfectly vertically integrated. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like a manufacturer engineer's paradise. Like, I watched this tour of it online where it's like everything for this fucking car happened, okay? Like, Mm -hmm. like, like... It got so vertically integrated that literally they were mining metal. They had this furnace where they were, like, smelting it. And then they would, like, cast it into these, like, engine blocks. Like, they they were doing everything at the Rouge. That is so cool. Yeah. Uh, Every single piece of building a Model T, every part of that process was painstakingly broken down to shave seconds off of its cycle time, okay? Mm. So I don't remember the exact number, but in this book it it says that Henry Ford broke down every single task it took to build a Model T, and I think you ended up with something like 7,244 tasks, and then he would have his manufacturing engineers just optimize the hell out of it. So it's like, this task takes five minutes, but if you move this person's elbow like five centimeters to the right, (laughs) like you can actually make it like four minutes and 97 seconds. or 97 uh, seconds? (laughs) You know, dude, that always gets me. I don't know why. In my mind, a minute is a hundred minutes. I'm sorry, it's a hundred seconds. A minute is a hundred minutes. Clearly, yeah. this coffee is a little, <laughs> a little too strong. Oh my god. But anyway, yeah. So like this, the Rouge is like is like maybe the most efficient and vertically integrated manufacturing operation on the globe at this time. It's like a wet dream for manufacturers. You would you would go and it's a playground. Oh. Um, but. Uh, the Rouge isn't all fun and games because th- there's only a certain level you can optimize a process to, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I moved my elbow five centimeters. You got your eight seconds out of me, but I'm still working at a normal pace. Mm-hmm. And Ford started to really heavily lean on these sort of like rushes where he'd be like, okay, we need to go faster. So you need to just keep moving like faster. And you know, obviously, if I'm a worker, I'm like, dude, fuck you. I'm just going to do my job. Yeah. So he had this, like, enforcer paramilitary organization that existed uh. within Ford. And they would go around and use, like, these intimidation tactics. And they would be like, dude, literally, it got fucking crazy. This was, like, a violent era. There was mob ties. This guy, Harry Bennett, 
was like was like kind of the head of I can't remember what the department was called, but it was some bullshit name. But what it really was was this goon squad that would go around, and it was violent. Like literally, there was one guy who got fired, and he, Bennett asked this guy to come check out a car with him. It was this engineer. He didn't even do anything. I think he was just like a threat to Ford's power, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Yeah, check out what's wrong with this car." And the guy like leaned into this car into like the hood, and he like slammed the thing ah. down on him, and then he like turned the car and like whipped it around, and the guy got thrown with the car, and they were right near the door of the factory. He got thrown out of the factory, and then Bennett like hit the thing, closed the door, and that was him getting fired. Oh, what like, the fuck? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like. It was like this. It was this like reign of terror where like he would just go around and be like you know uh, intimidating people essentially. Ew, dude! Um, just tell him you're fired. <laughs> just tell me, dude. There was this other crazy thing. Oh my god! Can I be totally honest? Before I would still show up to work the next oh, day. Oh yeah, yeah, dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> you didn't fire me. Like, yeah, <laughs> I didn't get in a letter. I want my money. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, the Rouge is very complicated for this reason because it's an amazing uh, place, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, it's also like this kind. Of, it's like American industrialism. I'm so fascinated with American like industrial like the 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 interplay between like you know industry yeah. and like you know making people's lives better and like the terrible things that are done to yeah. do that. You know. Yeah, it is really interesting. Oh my god. Okay. Well, whatever. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But no, no. That that's I I I feel like I've been talking this entire time. Yeah. No. <laughs> I I interject with Good. ick and red flag. <laughs> <laughs> that's that is a um. A prime contribution. <laughs> um, one last story, just from this reign of terror time, and then I think we're almost finally ready to get to the end. Oh, my God. <laughs> just, I, there was one thing where I remember there was another engineer. I think the other guy who got fired, somebody was, like, talking out against Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys, he worked at uh, River Rouge, but he was on vacation with his family in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And he was driving along and he got pulled over by a state trooper. Mm-hmm. And the state trooper goes to his car and he's like, oh, was I like speeding officer? And the guy's like, Henry Ford's very disappointed in you. <gasps> <laughs> 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 ew! <laughs> ew, 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 ew. Yeah. And then be like, sorry, Daddy Henry Ford. Yes, I'll, I'll lick your balls. <laughs> so like, yeah, it, th- there were definitely things going on at the Rouge that were not above board. Ew, ew, but ew, from ew. a manufacturing perspective, it was dope. That's <sighs> great. Yeah, it was so great. <laughs> Can we get to the book now? <laughs> yes. Um, so, no, this is all the book. Like, this is oh, a lot of this is the book. Okay. Um, um, uh, essentially, just to put a cap on the non-Amazon stuff, we won't go too into the Rouge because I, I still do really want to do that podcast at some point. But understand that while our story is taking place, Ford is dealing with a bunch of power plays at the Rouge. People are, like, jockeying. Harry Bennett is not the only game in town. Mm-hmm. Ford's son, Edsel, is also uh, trying to gain power in, in the company. Mm-hmm. And Ford is playing Bennett against him like a Machiavellian uh, puppet master. His own son. Like, ew. Yeah. No, it's, they had a terrible relationship. Yeah. Do you want that relationship with your child? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> that would be so, that would be gross. That's pure evil. No, apparently they never, uh, yeah, they never really got along. Mm-hmm. They're <laughs> kind of a tragic story. We'll, we'll save it for the, for the Ford for the, and River Rouge pod. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, we are finally ready to begin our story. Hey. <laughs> Part one, the quest for vertical integration. <laughs> Jesus. 
I didn't actually write down any part numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So our story begins where a lot of engineering history podcasts begin. Mm -hmm. The British being assholes. (laughs) (laughs) We love the Brits, though. We do. We do. Um, Except for most of the time. (laughs) We would love them if they were just not so British. (laughs) Oh, I got none. I got none. <laughs> We're going to mess with your U.S. manufacturing. Yeah? <laughs> Sorry, we love our British. We do. We love it's our nothing British but viewers. love. 11% of the viewers in this podcast, I know. by the way. So if we ever go to England. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We'll be shot on sight. Yeah. If they had guns, which they tell us. We'll you're be stabbed. Sh- you're going to stick us with your little sword. We're shank. I just got my Glock. I'll shoot you. <laughs> yeah. I just got this in from the States. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, England. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nothing but love. Um, so, hey, uh, one specific uh, British guy. Look, it's not all British guys. It's one specific British guy. Mm-hmm. Never really heard of him, probably. A man named Winston Churchill. (laughs) (laughs) Who's that? (laughs) Oh, shucks. I never heard no Winston Churchill. (laughs) Sorry. No, it was funny. Thank you. You didn't laugh, but... I smiled. (laughs) (laughs) Just get on with it. (laughs) Before, (laughs) Before Mr. Churchill became Prime Minister of the UK, he served as its... Secretary of State for the Colonies, <laughs> which was a job title. British colonies in Southeast Asia produced much of the world's rubber at that time. Mm-hmm. And rubber prices were starting to fall. And Churchill's like, no, oh, we, 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 can't, we can't have that. So We can't have that. We can't have that. <laughs> no, yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't do it, Churchill. It. Not... <laughs> <laughs> if anything, it would go into Sean Connery, which is like not. That's not yeah, no, it's not. Rubber prices are starting to fall, so Churchill wanted to regulate the industry to favor England. Mm-hmm. He's like, we're getting all this stuff out of Asia because that's our colonies. Yeah. And we want a little extra money for that. Yeah. Why were rubber prices falling? It just global demand. So it's like it's like supply and demand stuff. It didn't really get, get into that, but essentially it's just like, you know, they're making a certain amount of money. They want to like cons- – I. M- so my understanding of the way I read it, they had been producing a lot because of a lot of demand. Demand mm-hmm. started falling, so prices started falling. And so Winston wanted to constrain the supply, I hope I'm getting that right, so that they could keep prices where they were. Yeah, and around what time was this? Like after World War II? This is post-World War One, way before World War Two. So I want to say 20s? I think, uh, let me double check. Um, no, yeah, July 1925. Okay. Is when this happens. Okay. Um, or mid-1925 in general. And, you know, the U.S. is quick, quick to come up with a response. Henry, uh, I think Henry, uh, Firestone, the founder of Firestone Tires, mm-hmm. that guy, he was trying to get Ford to join this, like, rubber conglomerate thingy. Ford didn't really do that kind of thing. Yeah. But he was pretty pissed about England's transgressions considering every Model T that rolled off his assembly lines had four rubber tires. Mm-hmm. His quest for vertical integration at his factory had literally caused him to create this massive foundry. We talked about this where he's like smelting metal at this point. This yeah. is not normal. <laughs> I cannot explain how abnormal it is. I don't even think modern manufacturing no. companies. Like, Do you think just, Tesla is out there? Like, like I, Mining gold yeah. or mining, uh, not gold. 
cobalt whatever. or yeah, whatever. whatever. Yeah. I think they like supply. I think they have suppliers. Most most people would have suppliers do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Imagine if Tesla opened a mine. That would be crazy. Yeah, the emerald mine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Time to get the emerald mine. Dude, wait. Elon gets his wealth from emerald mines. Tesla starts running out of money. Just reopen another emerald I mine. I know. It's not that hard, dumbass. <laughs> Jesus. We could run Tesla. <laughs> Elon, please. <laughs> Give us Tesla. <laughs> so anyway, Ford was not going to get caught with his tail between his legs. Mm-hmm. He tasked his secretary, Ernest Liebold, with finding a place that Ford Motor Company could grow their own rubber. Interesting. Part two, Brazil. Mm. Liebold looked all around the world. He used a combination of sound reasoning and dumb racism to come up <laughs> with the location. They, there was like Liberia, apparently, would have been a great choice, but mm-hmm. he was just racist against Africans. So what that was just fuck? out of the question. Okay. Uh, that, that's going to come up a lot in the story. Uh, anyway, he used that combination to come up with the location they eventually selected the Amazon. They eventually settled on a site on the Tapios River, an offshoot of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, it would be pretty instructive for you to hear about how rubber was being produced at this time in the Amazon, right? So Southeast Asia, the way Brit- England is producing the rubber, mm-hmm. it's all just kind of, I mean, you know, you're kind of planting it. It's like plantation style, basically. And there's a few reasons you can do that in Asia, but you can't do that in the Amazon. Okay. Um, so in the Amazon... Uh, first of all, as I'm describing this, keep in mind the highly efficient rouge plant where seconds are being shaved off of processes that happen every single minute. Okay. This got is it. how, yes, got it. Okay. So rubber is produced in the Amazon by latex tappers known as Serengueros, I think I'm pronouncing that right, mm-hmm. who lived in huts scattered down the tapios. Okay. So you have the tapios, which is this offshoot of the Amazon. Rubber trees, latex trees, are just dotting the the entire location. They're uh, they have huts like all. It's like independent contractors basically. It's not one company. It's just a bunch of guys okay. living in huts. How is rubber made? Because like you yeah. say, rubber trees, and I'm like, yeah. uh, trees don't you know? This was surprising to rubber. me too. So. <laughs> The way we make rubber these days, it's all synthetic. So it's yeah. all like in a factory. Back then, you have a latex tree and the latex seeps out of the bark. Whoa. So we'll talk through it. Okay. 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 So in the early morning, they would make cuts and these trees are called hevea trees. Yeah. So they would make cuts. So you take a machete, you make a cut, you wake up like 6 a.m., make a cut in the tree. Uh, you know, then you place a cup underneath the cup you made. Move on to the next tree. This surprised me too. Whoa. I think of rubber as being made in some vat somewhere. I know. I was like, <laughs> yeah. it's all fake. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they move along to the next tree. Then, after a full morning of that, they would take lunch and then they would take a nap because it takes time for the latex to drip into the cup because mm-hmm. it's literally rubber. So it's like coming down like molasses, right? Molasses. They wake up from the nap and they come up to come back to full cups. Okay. Then they'd collect the cups. And they would bring it back to their hut. So the, they have these huts they live in, and they're like tapper huts. Mm. They would take all these cups of latex and put it in like a giant pot thing. Um, or, or maybe not a pot, but they would basically just hunk it all together. And then they would smoke it over a fire, okay? So this is the process that creates rubber. You're boiling away 
uh, the latex. Like the it's it's you're essentially like making just a big seventy pound ball of rubber on a turn spit of all uh, things. Oh, your little dog? No turn spit dogs. <laughs> oh, okay. What there was was a shit ton of insanely toxic smoke that would oh, come off this God. thing, and they're just like. <gasps> Ew, so, that's gotta be rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, they're in this hut. They end up with like this eighty-pound ball of of uh, I wrote lumber. I meant to say rubber. <laughs> this eighty-pound ball of rubber. Then they would take that ball to a trading post at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So they would have trading posts, kind of you know every few huts or so. Mm-hmm. They'd bring it, and the people who worked in these trading posts were insanely exploitative. They would just dick these guys. Yeah. Aww. So everything that these guys needed to live was bought on credit. So it's like, oh, I need like, you know, literally access to the trails to walk up and down, like to make the cuts mm-hmm. that they had to buy that they had to buy. If you need a rope, where do you get rope? They get it at the training post, you know, anything that's mm-hmm. not rubber, basically, basically yeah. everything they need to live. They would buy it on credit and they were always trying to pay back these debts. But the system was set up so that they would never be able to pay these debts. Like, oh, they like were getting credit cards. Like, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Kind of. <laughs> it, it, yes, a little bit. Um, basically, like, like they would the what they had was worth like let's say you know fifty you know cents or whatever. Mm-hmm. They would get ten cents for it. <gasps> And then the guy who took it from them would then sell it for, like, 50 cents or whatever. Oh, these so, assholes. Yeah, it was a total uh, racket, right? Mm. Um, and by the way, some seasons, like, this doesn't always work in, like, winter or something when the latex isn't flowing properly. Mm-hmm. So they would just take that that season off, and they'd still be racking up debt at that point. So it's like oh. you're just getting into this hole you will never get out of. Yeah, that's got to be rough. Yeah. And, and, you know, Anna, when I hear about that system as a manufacturing engineer, mm-hmm. I have to admit, I kind of instantly want to optimize that system, yeah. not just for efficiency reasons, but, like, these guys are getting, like, dicked, you know? Like, we should, I don't know, should we? Maybe that's the question of this podcast, but maybe somebody should have done something about that. Lesser of two evils, maybe. Is that what Henry Ford is? We'll find out. Oh, Jesus. To his credit, Ford genuinely seemed to have these kinds of motivations, albeit in his usual paternalistic, mm. controlling kind of way. Yeah. It's not like life on the Tapayos or really anywhere in this region at this time was amazing by our standards. Mm-hmm. Disease, exploitation, poverty, these are all very common. People generally seemed very hopeless about life, which, I mean, I get it. Yeah. Ford's ambitions to reform humanity were not just limited to Dearborn. They began to expand to the Amazon. Oh, Okay. And so in 1928, Ford Motor Company purchased about 5,625 square miles of land, including a small village named Boa Vista. But the name would soon change to Fordlandia. I hate him. <laughs> you're not with the you're not, you're not with the the journey. No, why Fordlandia? That's just so like stroking your own ego kind of thing. Apparently, uh, I don't I don't even think he came up with it. Okay. I think originally it was Fordlandia, and then it got kind of anglicized to Fordlandia. Okay. Well, I'm let's let's keep hearing. So, uh, they bought the land. Mm-hmm. And and let me just kind of recap what what we just heard. So. You have you have two kind of distinct motivations. The genuine, I think, motivation of wanting to make people's lives better 
again, in this kind of controlling way. Mm-hmm. And also the motivation of, like, I want to bring this in-house. So, for economic reasons, this has to work economically. Yeah. We're going to go over the challenges of both of those goals. Okay. <laughs> so... He at this point he's sending Ford people in. They're bringing shit in from Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. They're producing very little locally. They're like, let's waltz in here, let's airdrop an American town into the Amazon. <laughs> we're gonna like just bring everything in that you would normally have. Okay. There's a certain standard of living we're gonna achieve okay. that will sort of uh, help the people of the Amazon, right? Um. Unfortunately, their preparations proved woefully inadequate for the challenges that would face them. Let's go over those challenges and the crisis they would essentially crescendo into. You know, this kind of reminds me of the um, Panama Canal episode. Mm. Yeah, you know, it kind of does. They were facing a lot of challenges because the area that they were constructing, like there wasn't a lot of clean water. There was disease was rampant, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Is that... That is, that's what we're, yeah, yeah. No, that will be a big part of it. Okay. Um, Oh, my God, dude. Yes, disease being massive. Like, uh, maybe it's this general thing of just, like, these guys, like, at this time thought they could just waltz in and just, like, every, I don't know, like, just prepare everything. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it was the French who really suffered from the Panama Canal. And then once the U.S. came in, they were like, okay, where did the French go wrong? Mm. Let's redo that. And it was like all it was all sanitation. It was all like water quality and Mm -hmm. making sure that their workers didn't get sick from mosquito bites and stuff like that. Yes, that will definitely be a factor here. Ooh, okay. So why don't we kind of in that vein Mm -hmm. break the challenges they faced into two main categories, Mm -hmm. environmental Mm -hmm. and interpersonal. Interpersonal. Ooh, spill the tea, girl. (laughs) We'll do that after. Let's do environmental first. We got to build up to interpersonal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sorry. <but> anyway. <laughs> okay, cool. So environmental challenges, number one. Ford transported down from Michigan the vast majority of their tooling and infrastructure. Normally, that would not be the end of the world, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm opening a plant in Ohio and I transport stuff down from Michigan. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Love that. Mm-hmm. Love that for you, Queen. Yeah. Love- bestie (laughs) okay just keep going this stuff was not made for the jungle oh yeah that that makes sense Mm -hmm. saw blades corroded oh paper got moldy Mm -hmm. nothing was made for where it actually was additionally ford insisted that the construction of the town of fordlandia where everyone lived would be done in the american style Think of iconic white picket fences, a mm. church, a schoolhouse, a movie theater, a water tower, sidewalks, fire hydrants, the whole nine yards. In the Amazon. In the Amazon. Like, just grading a section of land and just plopping an American village down. Oh, God. Think of old school classic Americana. Like, hey, you Bill. Like, how's the weather doing? <laughs> like, how's the life, Jenny? She's <laughs> <laughs> a pain as usual. <laughs> I hate being married. The old ball and chain. Please release me from this from this doom. Sounds like you got the blues, Jim. <laughs> I'm gay. <laughs> I, I think a nice Coca-Cola will help you with that one. Okay, let me just huff it real quick. <laughs> ah, we also do drugs, folks. It, anyways. Anyway. <laughs> we can cut that. What? Okay, I'm just kidding. You really liked it. This is gold. This is comedy gold. <laughs> 
Um, oh, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, look, to give credit to Ford's intentions here, this standard of living, you know, was in a lot of ways much higher than what these tappers living on this, you know, river were used to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of reasons, it didn't end up working out the way he wanted it to. Number one, for one thing, many of the structures they built were not suited to the Amazon. Um so in the Amazon, thatched hut construction is common, right? Um, so this is where you make the uh, hut and, mm-hmm. and, you know, often it's an A-frame construction. You get ventilation. It's quite cool. Mm-hmm. It tends to be well ventilated and is not a metal, metal which can corrode. Ford structures trapped heat inside and baked their residents, oh, right? That was yeah. made for Michigan. Michigan gets chilly. It gets, it gets pretty cold, cold you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but time and again, when the Ford employees would be asked, like, hey, look, we're Americans. We, you know, we're coming from the same reference. We want to build thatch huts. Okay, mm-hmm. sorry, that that might sound crazy to you. We want to build thatch huts. It's a better system for this region. Not, you know, not absolutely, but for this region, yeah. we want thatch huts. Oh no! What did he say? Time and again, Ford would nix it. This was supposed to be a yes, an economic, you know. Uh, mission, mm-hmm. but was also a mission in like, no, we're going to like bring these guys into the 20th century, you know? I think and they were fine before, with the exception of like getting fucked over financially. Th- th- this is part of like the question that I had reading the thing is like, what would you actually want to change about life in the Amazon? And also, is it your place to change that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, looking outside from observers, I could say, and this is getting a little philosophical. We'll get more concrete pretty soon here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if we could eliminate the disease, get better sanitation, those things, I don't think anybody would complain about that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, this sort of, like, level of control where it's like, no, you need to build these structures the way I want you to. Mm -hmm. And also, why is that your call to make? Yeah, dude, get a grip. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, as you mentioned, disease was rampant. Ford employees suffered greatly, especially because they weren't used to it, but also their families suffered greatly. Oh, no. And it wasn't like I got sick and I walked it off. Little Timmy and and the children, you know, that there were, you know, and, you know, this isn't funny at all, but there's many stories in this book of, like, you know, people brought their families and their whole family died, essentially, (gasps) and they survived. And imagine that being your life, you know? Oh, I'd be so upset. I, there was one guy who was one of the the leaders of of Fordlandia, like the sort of the director. Mm-hmm. And this this colony slash economic enterprise went through like six or seven directors. Like it was like you know succession, mm. um, quick succession. And one of them, I remember, he brought in his wife and four kids. When he left, his wife was like basically on life support, <gasps> and they had one kid left. Oh my and god! And they went back to Michigan, and he, they went back to Michigan, and Ford was like, "You failed," and like he. <gasps> Went, he Dog, quit. my family's gone. <laughs> he quit immediately after yeah. that, obviously. I think he went to go work for, like, United Fruit Company, I'm pretty uh, sure. Yeah. Dude, it's almost like Ford is, like, projecting his his own insecurities about failing Fordlandia onto this well, family. What's really kind of interesting throughout this entire story, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but Ford never went in person. Ford directed everything from afar. He never went. Everybody was asking, like, especially the Brazilians, you know, that they were making the deals with were like, yeah, like, we can't wait for Ford to get here and, like, give us, like, you know, economic, like, help. Not not help, but, like, invest in our region is probably a better way of putting it. Yeah, and Ford's like, "Mm, it's a little too humid for me. (laughs) He kept making these, like, bullshit excuses. It's like, dude, like, like, I mean, yeah. 
Oh man, my son has the flu. You know the son that I fucking hate. <laughs> yeah, man. He's, I wish I, I need to give my my dog a bath. Yeah. <laughs> like some bullshit like that. It was bullshit like that. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. He was getting older. It, Ford. I think you know Ford also transforms over this story. Where he, by the end of the story, he is not the sort of utopian reformer who's giving people five dollars a day and and all this stuff he is more the fascist (laughs) a little yeah i mean more so definitely he's like set in his ways Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's like the way like he he just like his open-mindedness has been reduced significantly okay i see where you're coming from yeah um Anyway, uh, let's see. Let's see what we got here. So, disease. We went over insects, a constant threat to the people of Fordlandia. I okay. bet. So, Michigan insects. Yeah, you got some big flies. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But that's nothing compared to the Amazon. Oh okay. Jesus! Yeah, I mean, there there are insects that like even to this day we don't know. Oh yeah. Exist. Like it's just like. Yeah. It is the wild. It's truly. estimated that for every species that we know about in the Amazon, there's one we don't know about. Mm. That's. I mean, I don't know how they would know that if we don't know about them, but that's fine. It's, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could be lying to us. <laughs> Actually, it's five times. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they know, but that's in the book, mm. so it's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's written down. It must be true. <laughs> Um, pests of every kind bothered residents. The Amazon folks were mostly used to this. The Michiganders certainly were not. Yeah. But the threat wasn't even mostly to people. It was to the rubber trees. So at this point, right, Ford's like, what are we doing, guys? Let's plant some trees. This tree planting was a clusterfuck. They planted it in the wrong season. They didn't ask anybody, like, you know, what are we supposed to do here? They just came in. They were like, this doesn't seem that hard. They're just planting stuff. I plant trees in Michigan all the time. How hard can it be, you know? (laughs) And Ford also, part of his production system, right, was like, we're getting rid of experts. You know what I mean? Where it's like, we're going to have one guy make it, one guy build it, and one guy test it. And anybody can do any job. We're not going to have some, like, master machinist who can, like, do something on the fly and fix stuff for us, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, I want really low-skilled workers so that they can do anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And that sort of philosophy carried over to the Amazon where he's like, we don't need tree planting. How hard is it to plant a tree, you know? Dog. Yeah. No, there's a there's a uh, chapter in this book called Only God Can Plant a Tree, which is <laughs> that kind of speaks to, like, the Amazon people's, like, understanding of, like, it is really hard to make these trees work, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, they grow natively in the Amazon, like, two to three per acre, right? Ford is putting them, like, right next to each other. Oh. Um, just because it's, like, you know, well, it's a farm. It's a plantation. Think of, like, any orchard. You just have trees right next to each other. Yeah. We're going to increase the amount of rubber significantly. It did not work out that I, way. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> but back to the insects. Ants, flies, they love eating rubber. Spiders made webs on telegraph machines. So they had telegraphs, actually, at oh. this time. <laughs> And literally, remember how, so we had the Telegraph episode. Mm-hmm. Remember how we said there would be lines and you would, like, you know, send your your uh, your uh, messages across the Telegraph wires? Yeah. Spiders would make webs on these wires and short-circuit it to the ground, and it would, like, mess with all their stuff. Uh. Like, that is not something you have to deal with in Michigan. <laughs> I love that spider. He's, oh, he's, he's out there, he's out there uh, he's causing just, chaos. He's, he's, I bet he's like, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Oh, they were intelligent. <laughs> but uh, but there was one pest even worse than the spiders. Snakes? 
No, but I'm sure those were an issue too. Mm-hmm. Probably. But no, caterpillars. And they were no. everywhere. Not little baby caterpillars. Oh, you're going to hate this story. You are going to, if you think caterpillars are cute, you're going to hate this story. Oh, I love caterpillars. Oh, no. Oh, this is no. going to be tough for you. Okay. Okay. So caterpillars love eating rubber. Mm-hmm. At one point, caterpillars were so thick on every single surface that the directors of Fordlandia said, okay, everybody, stop what you're doing. Here's a bucket. Go grab some caterpillars. And literally, they just spent five hours just collecting caterpillars off everything. They ended up with 50 gallons of (gasps) caterpillars. You're going to hate this. They had this massive bonfire, (gasps) and they threw these fucking buckets in. And the chapter is called Bonfire of the Caterpillars. Oh, my God. Yeah. They just caterpillar genocide. Dude. Yeah. No. It's brutal. No, it's it's terrible. I I just imagine, like, the caterpillars being like, oh, I'm taking off my home and I get to hang out with my friends in this fun little bucket. I wonder what happens. Oh, my God. I'm on fire. (laughs) Oh, my God. It didn't become real for me until I I was laughing about this shit. Now it's like, oh my god! Oh man, I just was taken from my home to hang out with my buddies in a fun little bucket. What's what's going on? Why is it? What? Why? 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 Why on fire? Okay, I don't really like this anymore. Can we move on? No, I can't. This is so like they didn't do anything wrong. I know they were just living happily. Oh my god. Dude, what if aliens pick us up off Earth because we're pests and we don't even know it? And then we get to hang out with our friends and then get incinerated. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound that bad, honestly. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm ready for death. <laughs> uh, anyway, by the way, the caterpillars, the insects, they weren't even the main threat to rubber trees. Oh. <laughs> what the fuck? The main threat, the real reason that planting these trees so close to each other was such an issue Mm -hmm. was a sickness called South American leaf blight. Mm. Like any plant sickness, South American leaf blight can jump from tree to tree. That's why when you see these trees in the Amazon, they're always only like two to three per acre. Whereas, you know, Ford had these guys planted dozens to the acre. They are right next to each other. Ooh, okay. And unfortunately, that meant a few things. First, when the blight did come around, it spread from tree to tree extremely rapidly. So you would have just, like, all your trees die, like, instantly. <gasps> Oof. Um, second, in not instantly, but secondly, in drier seasons. So the Amazon gets very variable rainfall. So it's like you could have 70 inches one year, 110 inches the other year. That's a big difference in terms of your soil dryness. Mm-hmm. In the Amazon, you have the jungle's extensive network of other plants and their roots are kind of intermingled with yours. And it's like, okay, everybody's kind of holding it together and we're one ecosystem, whatever. Yeah. On a plantation, it's like your roots are there. And if you're not an old enough tree, you don't have these other plants holding you down. So if it's a dry season, your roots just shrivel up and just dry out and you just, you know, you die essentially. Oh, okay. These are all things that are extremely predictable that like any expert could have told these guys. They eventually brought a couple experts in and honestly, these guys were not that great. So I kind Mm -hmm. of get their skepticism. Yeah. I think they just didn't find the right person. I'm sure, frankly, they should have asked the local like tapper folks. I I know. I'm I'm sitting here thinking like that you have experts at your disposal. Yeah. It it was, you know, it was an arrogance thing. Yeah. Or why didn't they just hire the locals to do, to collect the... (laughs) You know, Uh, it's a class thing. It's a race thing. It's, you know. 
We got it. We, you know, we can plant trees. How hard could that be? And, like, just entire families are wiped out. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes. (laughs) Okay. So now we're ready for the interpersonal challenges. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. So we've described the life of the rubber tappers that lived in the Amazon already. And don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. That sounds terrible. But there are some parts of that lifestyle that those who came to work for Ford in Brazil still would have expected. Mm-hmm. They would have expected a level of personal freedom that American workers don't generally expect. So they, they, they weren't interested in punching a time clock. They wanted to show up when they wanted, leave when they wanted, eat what they wanted, drink what they wanted, just generally do what they wanted while selling their labor to finance their lives. Mm-hmm. So like a common deal you might have as a tapper is like, you go to one of these, like, creditors, who, by the way, is exploiting you. Like, it's nobody's arguing that. Yeah. But you're like, hey, you know, I'm going to do this rubber stuff, but I'm also going to, like, put out a fishing line, and I'm going to use your river, but I'm also going to, like, you know, like, while your trees are, like, dripping latex, mm-hmm. I'm going to catch my dinner, and, like, that's going to be part of the deal, and so you don't have to pay me, like, this much, but I'm going to bring you that much, and, like, you know, you're, like, yeah. haggling. It's, like, very hard. You know, Ford was all about, like, let's pay people more. And he was asking people, his his folks, like, hey, what are these guys getting paid down here? And we're just going to bump up their wages. And these guys are like, well, that's not like a money transaction. Like, how do you factor in the fishing line and then yeah. you using the trail? So it was really hard to like, like, these guys didn't even have bank accounts. Like, it wasn't like a money system, you know? They can't just be bought. It's like, it's their life. It's their, their li- livelihood. And, and, you know, it's not to say that you can't be like, hey, now that you're going to work for Ford, you're going to use money. Like, mm-hmm. that would have been fine. But like... There are certain things that at least these guys would have expected where it's like, you know, you would never do a time clock on the Amazon. You would be like, hey, I'm wandering in. I'm going to get you some latex and then I'm out. You know, yeah. you know what this this reminds me of the the Joker being like, I'm an <clears throat> immovable object meeting an unstoppable force. Yes, kind like, of. You have Ford like automation is key to yeah. a successful to his successful company versus the Amazon, which is just like a spiraling ecosystem. Yeah. Like it cannot be stopped with its growth. It's like, excuse me, it's like a culture clash, yeah. essentially. Kind mm-hmm. of what you're saying. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, yes, great point. Mm-hmm. Um, Ford, well, this is also exactly what you're saying. So Ford, <laughs> by contrast to the system, was also on a, quote, civilizing mission in addition to an economic one. While this certainly had racial undertones, it wasn't honestly much different than Ford's previous civilizing mission on the people of Michigan when he exchanged that for the $5 day. Yeah. But something, but to be fair, it's not, like, the people of Michigan are used to the, or like, it wasn't as big of a culture clash. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's probably why that worked in Michigan, but we'll see. It had some challenges here in the Amazon. Yeah. Well, I mean, it worked, but it, it's still like red flags. Yeah. Yes. No, That that that's a good distinction. It worked, but it's also like... Ew. Yes. Ew. Why, <laughs> bro? Yeah. I'm getting like, ew. Yeah. Um, anyway, this uh, sort of civilizing mission tended to translate to intractable arrogance. Mm. Ford, the company, was paying good wages to the workers, though a one-to-one comparison was impossible due to the barter-based trading system in place at the time. The price for that was submission to the morality police in much the same way we've already described. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so when Fordlandia first started, this is kind of a kind of a a corollary to that whole thing. Yeah. So when Fordlandia first started, folks came far and wide to the plantation to try to get work because like they had heard of the five dollar day and they were like, "Are we getting paid five dollars?" They were definitely not getting yeah, paid five dollars. So. But everybody was really pumped because Ford was kind of this like you know almost celebrity figure of like, "I'm going to come and like transform your economy and you know you're going to get a way higher standard of living." And everybody was like, "That sounds awesome. Let's go." So yeah. just this giant like you know like caravan almost of folks showed up at Ford Land. They didn't even barely had to recruit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but their turnover was super high because of these like culture clashes. Yeah. But regardless, folks came far and wide, and folks who came to work would often bring their families. They'd bring their friends. Like, it became this whole sort of, like, almost, like, music festival vibe mm-hmm. uh, outside of Fordlandia, where there's, like, this, like, shantytown kind of popping <laughs> oh up. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? And people wouldn't just settle themselves and their families there. People were, like, opening restaurants, oh. opening bars, gambling houses, brothels, oh. like, liquor stores. Like, these all I'm opened, sure he didn't like that. <laughs> the next thing I wrote, the Ford official hated this. (laughs) One visitor from Dearborn called it, quote, a mecca for all undesirables, even criminals of the entire Amazon Valley. Oh, (laughs) God. So having an unsanitary, unregulated, and crowded pop-up town right next to the operations was extremely disruptive to everything they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. They couldn't do jack shit about it they didn't own the land and yeah. the brazilian government's like hey this is your problem like <laughs> we sold you the land like, like you go i mean it's not your land yeah just deal with it bitch <laughs> deal with it so sort of their their um their answer to that was like okay employees you can't go there like <laughs> you're living on site we will feed you like you, like they had all these like it was the exact same thing it was like this like draconian level of control where it's like <laughs> You know, like, we control your lives, but we'll give you everything. So this is kind of the devil's deal. They had a hospital in Fordlandia. They had a a food hall. They had... They had a fucking movie theater. <laughs> they had every. They it was like an American town, basically. You know. You know, Ford kind of reminds me of um, what is that one show? Um, I think it's like Nick Nate Nathan Fielder. Nathan Nathan for you? N- yeah, Nathan for you. There's like one episode where he's like, "I can scientifically prove that I am fun." <laughs> that kind of <laughs> reminds me of Ford a little bit. Yes, <laughs> but instead of fun, it's like it's like a a, a better life for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, why aren't you happy? I am fixing your life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that was kind of his attitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, that, that's basically what the deal was. You, you, you get this higher standard of living in exchange for your freedom, essentially. Mm-hmm. Part three. <laughs> the riot. Oh, no. So... Obviously, it took a certain type of person to just give up their entire way of life and then go live under this really new... It would almost be like if we were expected to go work in the Amazon, you know? Oh, like, it yeah. was like just a different... And by the way, the Michiganders who came down to the Amazon, that was a real adventure for them, too. Oh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> so, believe it or not, crazily, tensions had been building for a while <laughs> <laughs> between Ford managers and their Brazilian employees. Mm-hmm. That tension reached a tipping point in December 1930, okay? So this is about two years after Fordlandia has been founded. They've planted this first shitty crop of trees. It's not really working. <laughs> They're doing everything wrong. Yeah. Everything's rusting. They're still learning the early lessons, right? Yeah. Um, and sort of the real tipping point was that they had just changed the dining hall rules, okay? So kind of before it was like, 
we'll provide you food, but uh, you basically you buy it from our, our dining hall and we have a waiter come serve you. It's basically a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. And um, basically what ended up happening was like these guys were all like, hey, I don't like the food in the dining hall. The dining hall is serving like oatmeal, canned peaches, rice, and like whole wheat bread. Like oh. it like it, it's it's just bland. It's not yeah, good. Ew. <laughs> um, okay. Imagine like you're like going from like eating like wild fish and like fruit off like a tree and it's, yeah, like, it's like now here's this like bullshit. <laughs> here's this gruel. Here's this literal gruel. <laughs> That reminds, do you remember the thing where it's like, it was like, this is a total tangent. It was like, it was like, um, it was like a Twitter thing. And the tweet was like, overnight oats, gig economy, (laughs) tiny tiny homes. You were a peasant eating gruel in a hut. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I do remember that. Yeah. Yes. Um, but anyway, these guys were like, hey, this food is bullshit. I don't want to eat this. And we're in this like weird scenario. I'm just going to like when it's lunchtime, you're paying me money. I'm just going to go out to the shanty town, buy lunch at a restaurant, maybe at the brothel. Mm-hmm. You don't know. And then I'm going to come yeah. back and you can't enforce jack shit out there. Mm-hmm. That's not your land. Um, so <sighs> the Ford employees were basically like or the Ford uh, um, uh, administrators were essentially like, hey, we have a new rule. We are going to automatically deduct the cost of food from your paycheck. So you might as well eat it now. Um, and, uh, you know, also you can't leave the site without permission <gasps> if you work here. Oh, okay. What Which, am I, 12? I know. It was like school? asking for the hall pass. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we mentioned how gross the food was. Um, so, and also in addition to that insult to injury, it's not even like a restaurant anymore. They changed it like from a waiter system to like a cafeteria system where you have like your tray and you're going down mm. the line and like getting shit. It's, it's a small thing, but these things build up. Yeah. Um, and the construction of the building we, we, we talked about before, it wasn't like, it wasn't like extremely, uh, adapted to the Amazon. It was concrete, tar, and metal. Yeah. The whole thing turned into like the sweltering oven, you know? Mm-hmm. Not helping matters was that the guy responsible for imposing these new changes was a man named Kai Ostenfeld. Okay? Okay. So Ostenfeld had a reputation already for being condescending towards the Brazilian workers. Aww. And there was one worker who had beef with him already named Manuel Caetano de Jesus. Okay? So on December 22nd, 1930, de Jesus is eating lunch mm-hmm. and Ostenfeld is there too. Um, and De Jesus gets into an argument with Ostenfeld. And you have to remember, the tension is already as thick as it can be. Oh. People are not happy about these dining hall changes, these impositions on their lives. Like, uh, it feels like you're, like, stifling us. Mm-hmm. Um, so De Jesus and Ostenfeld start arguing. And it culminates in De Jesus being like, you know what? Fuck this. He hands in his badge. Okay? Ooh. I quit. I'm out. Okay? <laughs> There are two accounts of what happened next. De Jesus claims that Ostenfeld took the badge and started laughing, like, ha, 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 which infuriated the crowd because it's like, I don't give a fuck about your grievances. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Ostenfeld claims that De Jesus handed in his badge and then turned to the rest of the crowd and he said, I have done everything for you. Now you can do the rest. Okay. Whatever happened. Mm. It was enough to ignite the tension of the crowd into a full-scale riot. 
people, oh. it, it was the breaking point. People started smashing glasses. Oh. They took their dishes, like took the oatmeal, just like smash it on the wall. They were like pulled out knives and machetes. Dude, whoa. Yeah. No, okay. it turned into anarchy. They literally, there was a, a time card punch clock. They like smashed the fuck out of that. They're like, we don't want your time clock bullshit. Like, it was, it was starting to overflow. Uh, this was their way of repudiating for its precious, regimented, timely labor. Oh. So at this point, Austin Feld's like, well, fuck this. And he starts <laughs> hightailing it out of there. Interesting. <laughs> and soon all of the Americans were forced to flee because the workers were just like, fuck this. We're, they started chanting, Brazil for Brazilians, kill all the Americans. <laughs> So I all the Americans it. are just like, I think it's time to get out of here. I kind of love it, though. <laughs> I mean, based, but Go okay. Go off. Go off. So the Americans either jumped in a boat. Some of them jumped in a boat and just went out to the middle of the river so that they couldn't get followed out there. And they lived on this boat for, like, days, I think. Whoa. And then a bunch of the Americans couldn't get to the boat in time, so they just ran into the jungle. <laughs> it's like, fuck that. I would rather be in this jungle yeah. than there. Um. And so yeah, I like to imagine the caterpillars ganged up on them. Oh and yeah, ate them. they ate them alive for <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> What's funny is the caterpillars actually did eat some of the ants. So the ants that were pests that also ate it was this whole ecosystem yeah, that you Ford don't didn't fuck take into with account. The goddamn caterpillars like that. Yes, you don't. Now. Yeah. Sorry, that was really you didn't like that. No, it's it's fine. No, it's just it's sad that they burned. It's sad them. that they all burned to death, but that you yeah. know. I also don't think they were necessarily cute and cuddly. I mean, they're bugs, whatever. Mm. It just was anyway. Anyway, much less tragically, the rioters destroyed the office building, the <laughs> sawmill, the radio station, the telegraph station. Whoa. They smashed windows, cut power lines. There was a truck full of meat. They, like, pushed it into the river. <laughs> like, they were wrecking the place. Wow. Okay. So, they were pissed. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously. <laughs> So it took several days, and Ford was like, you know, the company Ford was just like, hey, Brazilian government, this has gotten really out of control. We need soldiers. So they sent 35 heavily armed soldiers to Fordlandia. They even Mm -hmm. waited two days. They waited two days after everything was, like, already destroyed just because, like, these dudes were, like, drinking. Like, it was, like, extremely dangerous for anyone to be there. Yeah. Eventually, it kind of peters out, and the Brazilian government sends a delegation to Fordlandia to meet with the workers. And the workers listed the following grievances. They wanted to eat what they wanted, where they wanted, when they wanted. They didn't want to be corralled into some cafeteria to eat standard American meals at fixed times. They wanted to be allowed to leave if they wanted. And then even the living conditions weren't even great. Single men slept in bunkhouses with as many as 50 other men. Mm-hmm. Those were the ones they gave and, and even, you know, sort of side, sort of smaller stuff included there. Yeah. It almost seems like a prison. It's like a work camp, essentially. Um, oh. You're getting paid, but it's like your life is also getting controlled, basically. I would, ha- I, I would, de- I, I would riot. I would definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, just imagine going from that. It's kind of weird, though, because like in a certain way, you know, not to get super philosophical, but were they more or less exploited as the tappers in the huts? Ooh. That's a question. I don't know. I think like. They were able to live their lives. But they felt more free that way. You know what's yeah. funny? Maybe they felt more free. They were maybe getting exploited more, but they felt more free. Mm. Who knows? Yeah. I guess it's a di- the difference between financial exploitation mm. and 
like work exploitation. Yeah, it's so much more tangible when some dudes like, like when some guys like fucking you over financially, you have no clue. But when some guys like, no, you can't leave this area. Exactly. It's like, well, I know exactly that that's fucking going on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So anyway, um, Ford uh, got these demands. Mm-hmm. Ford famously anti-union, by the way. Oh yeah. Didn't budge one <gasps> bit. He t- he's like this is an opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> My guy, your town is destroyed. <laughs> it's rubble. It's it's Rex. Um, he's like, okay, you don't like our generosity, you don't <laughs> like our our higher standard of living for you. That's fine. You're all fired. Everyone gets fired. Every single like a skeleton crew is like kept on to like do only the most essential tasks. The rest fired. Fresh workers are brought in. And with the government on their side, they finally got the Brazilian government on their side. They went through and destroyed the shanty town. They were Ooh. the government forced the the sale of the land to Ford. Ford bought the land as like get the fuck off this land. They destroyed the structures, the latrines. They like poured lime, like quick lime down the thing. Like they just like raised the earth. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So Dude. they they took total control. The guy who owned the land that like. The Brazilian government, like, forced him to sell it to Ford. He mm-hmm. said Ford got it for, quote, the price of a banana. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, that's just so disrespectful. Yeah. This was what Ford was used to. Because Ford used to do, like, you know, a shit ton of eminent domain stuff in the United States. Mm-hmm. Brazil didn't have that. But then after this, they were like, actually, no, you get to buy this land. <laughs> so, oh. um, and, and somewhat crazily, you know, they kept going. So this is 1930, <clears throat> and uh, they took no lessons from this. They just oh, kept chugging Jesus. along. This is where the story is going to turn into kind of a slog, because they're just going to keep running into the same types of problems over and over, mm-hmm. and very little is going to change for them to fix it. They are going to start to try to bring in experts. They're going to pick the wrong experts, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're trying, but it's just not really working. And then in 1934... Um, Fordlandia, th- this is something you should know that I probably should have mentioned earlier. Fordlandia, this whole time, not a great place to grow rubber trees. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> Rocky. Oh. Hilly. Mm. Generally bad soil. Oh, yeah. Just, damn. Not a good place. Not a good place to do it. Yeah. But <laughs> you really wound up for that one. <laughs> Look, that that was hardly the cause of the problems. Mm-hmm. But 1934, they're still running into all these same issues. And some of the Ford guys are like, OK, the issue was that we picked the wrong spot. So let's buy another place called Belterra, which means good earth, by the mm-hmm. way. Oh, OK. And that'll solve all our problems. And we're going to be back and mm-hmm. we're going to be better than ever. This is six years. So it started in 1928. This is six years later. Okay, got it. Ford's like, okay. And they're like, hey, by the way, um, you know, we've learned a lot from the Fordlandia experiment. Mm-hmm. We were going to do like thatched roof construction and, you know, adapt a little, like, just a little more of the local flavor. You know, we're just going to yeah. kind of, you know how it is. Mm-hmm. Ford's like, no, you're not oh, doing that. Oh, my guy, please. We are here to bring a higher standard of living by force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
By the way, I have never been down there before. <laughs> I've so never I... seen it. <laughs> and I never will see it. Oh, God. Um, so, yeah, they build another place called Belterra, or Belterra was what it was called. And um, same issues as Fordlandia. The, the soil is slightly better, but they're just, you know, they're running at all these things. They're mm-hmm. trying all these crazy grafting techniques to try to, like, fix these, like, artificially basically fix these trees. Mm-hmm. You know, we won't get into the gory details. The book gets really into the gory details, and it is fascinating, but just for, for interest of, of our time. Mm-hmm. You know, Belterra is running into many of the same issues, and we're going to just kind of skip ahead here. Okay. Nine years from 1934 to 1943. Yeah. Now, they haven't had the same riots or those kinds of issues, but and they are learning, you know, steadily what you should and shouldn't do through very painful experience. <laughs> um, but, you know... They're they're really not making that much progress. They never made an they never made close to a profit on Fortlandia or Belterra. Not even close. Really? Yeah, that doesn't not, surprise me. I mean, they're not even like really producing rubber. They're producing like a teeny bit of rubber. It's mm. just not really work. Like they, they, you know, you can't grow rubber under these conditions. Like, yeah. I mean, you can if you had done it right, but they didn't. So, shit. <laughs> we'll skip ahead to 1943 and. By this time, Henry's health has failed tremendously, like extremely bad. Like he's like, you know, sort of withdrawing into himself a little bit. He's becoming kind of cold. Ed mm-hmm. still has to take over the company, basically. How old is he at this point? He's probably pretty old. Ford is in his mid-70s, I think. Okay. Um, so this is 43. No, he would be like 80 because I think he was born in, what, 68? 18... Yeah, 60. 60... No, yeah, so so mid-70s. Okay. Um. But yeah, so, uh, but then his son, Edsel, is around 50. Mm-hmm. And he's taken over the company at this point, essentially. Okay. Um, and, uh, but funny enough, Edsel actually ended up passing away himself at the very early age of 49. Oh. Um, apparently his life kind of sucked. <laughs> like, oh, poor guy. Did not sound good. We'll, we'll, we'll go over it in the Ford episode, I'm sure. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, I think it was like cancer. It was like, you know, some, some terrible thing. Oh. But his own son, Henry Ford II became president of the Ford Motor Company in 1945. Okay. Yep. And one of his first acts after his father passed away and he became president was to sell Fordlandia and Belterra back to the Brazilian government at a $27 million loss. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. So I think they got the land for like eight million and then they put like 20 million dollars of investment in it. Mm-hmm. He sold it for like, I think, around two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's going to be rough. Yes. Um, and, and by this point, either Henry Ford has already passed away. The original Henry Ford has either already passed away or he's like two or three years from passing away. Like he's 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 not all there in the in the brain. No, I, I don't think so. By the way, Henry Ford, the uh, second, you know, a real reformer almost in the company. Like Edsel really did his best, but he was kind of living in his father's shadow. Mm-hmm. His own son, Henry Ford II, fired Bennett, who was that like sort of paramilitary, uh, you know, union buster guy. Yeah. That was that was actually, I think, his first act. And then he eventually really took Ford Motor Company to new heights and made it kind of more a global brand. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford II, by the way, went by Hank the Deuce. <laughs> <laughs> That was his, uh, that was what they called him. I love this guy. (laughs) He's great. Apparently people loved him. Um, Anyway, so, but, uh, yeah, clearly he had enough of a head on his shoulders to be like, yeah, we're just going to kind of cut the cord on Fordlandia and Belterra. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it partially was Hank the Deuce taken over. But what really killed Fordlandia and Belterra 
1945. I mentioned that our story ends around the end of World War II. Yeah. And during World War II, that's when really when synthetic rubber became a thing. Because it's like you need so much rubber at that point to make all these war things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, we're done fucking around with this, like, plantation bullshit. Like, we're really going to invest heavily in synthetic rubber. They called it war rubber, actually, is what synthetic rubber was initially called. Interesting. Okay. And uh, it became a thing during World War II. It stayed good after the war, largely eliminating the need for natural rubber. And I mentioned this before, but, you know, even by the end... Ford, Landia, and Belterra were nowhere close to making money. They were they were just money pits, literally. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, they invested twenty million into it after buying the land for eight mil. Yeah, and they sold it for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. And I don't think they ever produced like I think they produced some rubber, but I don't think they ever produced like it close wasn't enough. Them. Yeah, no way, no way. And that's not even talking about inflation. Oof. Um. Anyway, so that is almost that's basically the end of our story. Uh, Ford sells Belterra. And uh, we already talked about this, but Henry Ford himself never visited Fordlandia. Kind of a douche. You know? Not a huge fan. Complex guy. Yeah. But I my, my last bullet point, lessons, question mark? Uh, don't fucking, vi- first off, visit the land that you're going to be building on. Holy shit, my like, guy. Once? <laughs> once, please? Yeah. One's entire family start to die off because of uh, sickness. Maybe you should change some things. Get some, get some, you know, personal experience there. Like it's like, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, he he was kind of dictating from afar. He didn't really have the 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 close up. Excuse me, knowledge he probably wouldn't needed or or, or wanted. Mm-hmm. We kind of touched on this before, but one of the interesting questions to me is like. Should this have happened? And if so, how should it have happened? Like, is it is it any responsibility of a private company to go on this mission to, like, I'm going to raise your standard of living? Like, or, because, like, you know, you have aid organizations, Engineers Without Borders, right? Mm-hmm. That ideally would raise people's standards of living. Mm-hmm. But, like... Do you know what I'm trying to ask? Like, who- yeah, when it's coming from a private company, it's a little bit like like a savior complex, kind of. I don't think that's necessarily just with private companies. I mean, I think plenty of people. I mean, I love EWB. I respect EWB greatly. I'm sure there's plenty of people at EWB who have a savior complex. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I don't know. I think that's. I don't think like it's the responsibility of a private company to go in. Well, okay, it depend. I guess it depends on how the they go about doing it, as well. Like if it's yeah, if they go into a territory, ooh, I don't know. You could say it's almost like misaligned incentives, where it's mm-hmm. like if you have to both make money in the region and you somehow have this idea that you're going to make the region better. Yeah, but why? Why are you thinking? I think for me, it's the reasoning behind. Why would you need to make it better? So the steel man case I would make is like, hey, you know, ideally the work I do in my life hopefully makes humanity better. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to go into the Amazon and go like drop this factory in here, I hope I would make the workers lives better. 
Yes. Because otherwise, I'm just exploiting them. Yeah, but that's... He ended up exploiting them. <laughs> so I guess maybe the question then is, is it an execution issue? Did he just do it wrong? Or should you just not do this at all? Should you not even try? I think he... He first off did it wrong, for sure. I mean, and then secondly, the way he went about it was kind of racist because he there were other better areas that yes. he Yes. That wasn't used. his call, though. That was his secretary. I know, but, like, he's in charge of this. I know, That's yeah. It's, like, his company. It's almost like part of his ma- Ford's main issue is that he wasn't involved at the level he should have been. Like, maybe he should have personally made the call, no, we're going to Africa. Or maybe mm-hmm. he personally should have, like, seen everything going on and been like, no, we do need to make changes. Yeah, but do you really think that would have helped or changed anything? That's I don't. question. I don't think that it would have. Because even just his actions of not going there, I don't think... Even if he went there, I don't think it would have it would have made a difference. Yeah, Ford's will was like famously like indomitable. Like when he got his mind on something, like it's like no, I will not rest until this is done. Yeah, I keep referencing the Joker. <laughs> what is uh, he? He's, he's Ledger's. the unstoppable force. No, no, no. He's Ledger's Joker. It was like. I'm like a dog chasing a tire. I just want to know what happens when I catch it. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think the Joker in that movie is more about, like, I don't have a plan and I'm just going to chase cars. Mm-hmm. I think Ford's problem was he had too much of a plan and he was sticking to it too rigidly. Yeah. I don't know why I keep referencing it. So, I, I don't know. But anyways. Um, yeah. My end call is I don't think... It's up to the, a private company to, like, go in and, like, save a, a land a, or a area of land or anything like that. I think if they do want to do that, I, the motivations need to be good intention, good intentions. I, th- I You know, maybe this is my, like, I can fix him complex yeah. <laughs> coming up. <laughs> yeah. But I think that there is maybe a way to do this right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, me personally. I didn't write any of this down. This is all off the dome. But, like, I think it... I don't think there's anything wrong with starting an international arm of your business if you happen Mm -hmm. to be an industrialist. I do think you really need to have the, like, you know, sort of uh, well-being of your workers top of mind Mm -hmm. in a not paternalistic, controlling way. Yeah, a little creepy. So maybe we need to inject this whole operation with a lot more curiosity about what the Brazilians were already doing, both from a technical rubber perspective, but also Mm -hmm. the perspective of, like, what are you guys expecting out of your work day? And what are you expecting me as your employer to do, you know? Mm -hmm. So maybe you're a little inquisitive. And I'm not saying, you know, you're setting yourself up for, like, getting, like, dicked, you know? Like, maybe, you know. Like, you should you should be inquisitive. You shouldn't be naive, right? Yeah. Because um, there's certainly, at this time, you know, there was definitely a whole cottage industry of, like, taking advantage of, like, Americans coming in. Yeah. You know? So don't, don't open yourself up to that vulnerability. But I, I almost think, like, okay, maybe we scope down and we're like, hey, we're not going to transform your entire life and turn you into, like, little American soldiers or something. What we are going to do is pay you a fair wage, 
give you facilities if you want to use them. They're going to be built in your style. You could help us build them, actually. We'll pay you to help us build them. Adapt to them. Adapt to them. But adapt the best parts of your culture to the best parts of their culture. So maybe we have a thatched hut with indoor plumbing, you know? We can do something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. And that cuts construction costs, too, because it's way less expensive to make a thatched hut than to literally ship stuff down from Michigan to build this yeah. you know, model city, you know? But then it, it's also, like... I I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of thinking, like, modernization versus, like, the old school way of doing things. Like, you know, it's there comes a point where it's too much moderni- modernization and, like, like, the history and the culture of how things were done before then are maybe being lost. That's true. I mean, I also think that's inevitable over time. You mm-hmm. know, like... Our ancestors looking at us now would be ashamed of us <laughs> strongly. Good. Um, and yeah, and maybe maybe what we have these days is is worth it. But maybe it's maybe the question is like, what can we in our generation? What are we willing to give up? And what would we expect in return? Like maybe as an Amazon guy, and this is a question I would ask. I'm not saying this. Maybe as an Amazon guy, I would be okay with. Yeah, I'm fine staying in one place for like six hours a day, but you got to give me like two hours at lunch. And in exchange for that, I definitely need like sanitation and I need to be able to eat my own food. And, you know, I think it needs to be more of a conversation, but I wouldn't rule out the whole enterprise like like just generally. Okay. yeah. Well, that's my take on it. That's a good take. No, I mean, I, I and, you know, this is more of a. I'm I'm more trying to explore, like, you know, who knows? Yeah, it's it's something you should think about if, you know, if you ever If I ever <laughs> end up having to open a rubber plantation on the on the Tapayos River. That doesn't sound likely, um, to be honest, but I'll keep it in mind for sure. You need to start thinking bigger on it. <laughs> um Ooh. anyway, that's about all I have. Folks, I wanna remind you this book for Landia, an amazing book. It was actually a finalist for the Pulitzer. Um Ooh. great book. There's a lot more that I didn't get into about River Rouge and Dearborn. We There's will these, definitely like, get into it. We'll 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 do another podcast about it. But in the meantime, this is a really easy read. There's amazing like pictures and like, you know, Henry Ford hanging out with Thomas Edison. Mm-hmm. So definitely check that out. Um, one other thing I guess we should probably mention, me and Anna were looking at the numbers mm-hmm. and the Engineering History podcast just crops into the top 50% of podcasts worldwide. Ooh. So uh, thanks to everyone listening. Thank uh, you. This is on the backs of us not doing any promotion whatsoever. <laughs> so I guess if you've been sharing it at all or like even just listening at all, that's uh, that's highly appreciated. Continue to share. Yeah, if you want to. I mean, honestly, I, we literally, I don't think we've done, I, well, we have the Instagram account. Um, so I guess we yeah, are kind of promoting it that way. Kind of, yeah. Um, we will enforce our will onto yours. Yes. <laughs> We're actually going to start a uh, a Henry Ford style social media blitz. Yeah. Where it's like you will see nothing but the Engineering History Podcast. Yeah. So continue to tune in. <laughs> continue to tune in, or we will make you tune in. <laughs> we will take over your culture. Yes, and supplant it with uh, pure engineering goodness. Cool. On that note. <laughs> 
Cool. Well, thank you, uh, thank you, Anna, for for listening. I feel like I talked so much this episode. Well, you were very, very excited about the. You were I like all week. You were like, oh, it's gonna be a good episode. It's gonna be good. And I really enjoyed learning about this. Amazing. Well, it's a crazy story. Um, thanks, folks. We're gonna get out of here. Yeah. Uh, bye. Bye.